the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back, 602-508-0960. If the left really wanted to uh, support the Asian American community, uh, they would not be attacking them in the form of things that matter to the Asian American community, education. They would not be shunting them aside. They would not see Asian American organizations suing for racial discrimination, organizations like the Ivy League colleges and other institutes of higher learning because racial admission quotas work against them. That's what I think. When I was talking about this new discussion, it's funny how these things just kind of bubble up, isn't it? It's as if there's like five smoke-filled rooms. It's, they're not smoke-filled anymore. Well, maybe they're pot-smoked. I don't know. But there's these, these – you get the image that there's some room somewhere in this country. Bill, let's call it the crisis industrial complex. It deserves its own building, doesn't it? It's powerful enough. It's the outfit over there. Is it the building or the outfit? Yeah, the outfit over there, known as the crisis industrial complex. Complex has two meanings here. Military industrial complex concept, ethereal organization, but also a physical. There must be somewhere in Washington or New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco a crisis industrial complex where there's like five or six people. I assume Jack Dorsey is one of them, though I don't know. It's a secretive organization where they sit around a table and say, what can we infect the American mind and culture with today? Aha. How can we help force the revolution today? Aha. Well, let's make it anti-Asian violence because Trump. As listener Jennifer pointed out when I was talking about where these statistics are coming from on the uptick, supposed uptick of anti-Asian violence in this country, and I was pointing out it comes from not the federal government's numbers but from uh, a, a, a privately uh, a privately funded uh, think tank uh, uh, lobby organization that was founded a year ago. Listener Jennifer wrote, Twitter is trying to blame the Atlanta shooting on Trump for calling COVID the China virus. That is what this is all about. Trump's supposed bigotry, which would be by that organization you mentioned, was formed a year ago, coincidentally when Trump started calling it the China virus. Good work, Jennifer. Jennifer is our PI in trying to find out who sits inside the the, uh, the crisis industrial complex. I assume Jack Dorsey is one of them. Who else is likely a part and parcel of that? Ibrahim Kendi, maybe, maybe. Someone from the New York Times, probably. At least they have a liaison to it. Someone from the Washington Post and CNN have liaisons to that. They're ex-officio members, perhaps, uh, so as not to um, violate conflict of interest 
laws of having members of the media inside of a nonprofit boardroom? You have something to say about this, Bill? I don't know. She might be a she might be an honorary member. She might be. Yeah. Cardi B might be. Possibly. Uh who else could be part and parcel of this? It'd be interesting to think about who's responsible for infecting who's most responsible for infecting the American mind with left wing nonsense and revolutionary um piffle. Be interesting to think about. Social media has a big role to play here. Hal's in Prescott. Hi, Hal. Hi there. How are you? No, you're in Phoenix, aren't you? Different Hal. How yeah, are I'm you? Yeah, I'm in Phoenix. Uh, let me start off by saying I want to debunk the myth that uh, illegals live in the shadows. Uh, in in uh, 1989, I hired my wife, who was uh, from Mexico, and was in the country illegally to uh, care for my late mother, who was suffering from Alzheimer's. Uh, well, we uh, we fell in love, and, and uh, I. Uh, you hired her before she was your wife. Your point is, you hired her before she was yeah. your wife. God, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that helps with the story. Okay, I'm with you now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, so. You fell in love with her over 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 getting to know her. Okay, we're we're with you yeah, now. And I then she became your yeah, wife. Yeah, okay, I got yeah, it. Right. Okay. And and uh, so uh, I uh, so to speak deported her back to Mexico where I could petition for her to come here legally. Oh, I'm with you. Okay, uh, right. Because as a spouse, uh, she would be able to come. Okay, I got it. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if you, if uh, your listeners know about it, but there's such a thing called as. Uh, fiance visa that's when you uh, meet somebody in another country and you want to marry them uh you can petition for them and on the condition that you marry them when they get to this country okay uh and so uh when she became uh uh legal and uh, she's a, of course a citizen uh, that uh in in uh, three years after she was here she was a, a citizen and she petition for her uh, uh, sibling, for three of her siblings. I helped her with that, uh, so I know all about it. Now, uh, two of them, in spite of the fact that she was going to get them here legally, decided to come illegally anyway because they didn't want to wait. The, the, the one uh, uh, sibling is still waiting right now, so that's the sucker. Uh, the other, the other uh, uh, two siblings are here, and they've been here for 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 many years, and they enjoy all the uh, 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 good things that citizens do. They do their taxes, they work. There's nothing they're punished for, or and they shouldn't be because the problem is with the politicians. They give them a virtual invitation to come, and and. Uh, the, uh, you see Biden doing that now. He, he gives them a virtual petition. And I, I might mention that my wife uh, had a job. She was uh, doing fine. She was, uh, uh, by Mexican standards, uh, middle class. But, you know, the U.S. is a nice place to be, even if you're not desperate. Right. So, uh, uh, so the, the, the idea when... When someone like uh, uh, our leaders say, well, we got to get 
these other countries uh, to, uh, to straighten their mess out, uh, then, then people won't want to come. Well, that's not true. People want to come here anyway because we're a great country. So uh, anyway, the myth that they live in the shadows, they, they don't live in the shadows at all. They, uh, uh, they do everything a citizen does. Get, uh, they get all the, uh, the benefits. So, uh, and this is the fault of the politicians, not the people that come here illegally. I agree with you, Hal. Um, you know, uh, th- this debate comes up in my mind a lot with the issue of uh, the deferred action, the DACA, the DACA uh, children. Um, this is the government's fault. This is the American government's fault. And, um, you know, we invite them. We tell them they'll be okay. And then what? We blame them for listening to the president? That's not exactly right, is it? How can you blame them for listening to the president? Um, This is why, you know, I put more blame on almost all of these problems on our government than I do, you know, uh, the people who try and come here for economic advancement. I wouldn't say the same thing about those who come here with criminal intent, further criminal intent, felonious intent, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, and those people. That's a different category. But those that come here, uh, you know, at the basic invite of our government, I blame our government for. One of the other aspects of this, and I get emails on this all the time. I must have gotten uh, five or six uh, in the last hour is why is it that we do not ever connect the dots that seem to prove, if we did connect them, that people in other countries who try to come here, who risk whatever life and limb they do to risk to come here illegally, seem to know something more about this country than almost every political scientist in America Political scientists and political operatives in this country like to talk about what a systemically racist and rotten place we are. How is it that people from other cultures risk life and limb to partake in that systemic racism? It's because they know something more than our political scientists do. They know more about America than our own homegrown lefties do. That's why. Because our homegrown lefties... Really, it's all narrative and no fact. It really is. And, um, and yeah, take it as a point of pride in some respects. But let's get a handle on it. A country that allows a million people in legally every year is not a country that has to apologize for its immigration policies. 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. My friend John Gabriel, uh, who hosts the uh, Ricochet podcast and writes for the Arizona Republic op-ed page, um, he had a post on Twitter the other day that got me to thinking about something. I guess the Apple stores are now open across the country, which is a good thing, and that would include the one in Scottsdale. And John Gabriel uh, text uh, tweeted um, – A team of security guards – he's former Navy, right, Bill? John is former Navy, right? A team of security guards, health questions, temp checks, security ropes, 
and lines outside. It's tougher to get into the Apple store than it was to get on my submarine. He means that literally. He he worked on a submarine. A team of security guards, health questions, temp checks, security ropes, and lines outside. It's tougher to get into the Apple store than it was to get on my submarine. Why was I thinking about that? Not about Apple. I was thinking about it in the context of uh, election reform and election integrity because I, I, I am someone who happens to think that voter ID is a good idea. I am someone who happens to think that you should no more consider it a badge of racism or bigotry to ask to see someone's ID before they vote in a federal election or for that matter a statewide election than it is to ask for their ID before they get on an airplane, a train, or have their temperature checked for goodness sakes before going into an Apple store. One will say, well, it's a private corporation again. Yes, but who has ever alleged that to get into a building like this one where I am or where many of you may work and you have to show ID, who has ever alleged that that is a badge of racism? The reason I raise it is a conversation I had with my friend Jim this morning who is rightfully worried about a monstrosity we've talked about here before. David Schweikert was talking about it. Lesko will be on it tomorrow. Debbie Lesko will be on it tomorrow. Biggs has been on it a bunch. Known as as H.R. 1, House Resolution 1. If it passes, it's passed the House. If it passes the Senate, um, to quote... um, uh, Hans von Spakovsky, a frequent guest of ours, um, former FEC commissioner. Um, if H.R. 1 passes, it will usurp the role of states, wipe out basic safety protocols, and mandate a set of rules in our elections that would severely damage the integrity of elections. It would wipe out state voter ID laws, by the way, among other things, among other things. So all of this is about the filibuster debate. The reason we're having a debate over the filibuster is because of H.R. 1. It's because We're worried that it could pass with a simple majority as opposed to the 60 votes needed to end cloture – excuse me, to get cloture to end the filibuster. When you hear about 60 votes in the filibuster, it's it's a cloture vote to end the filibuster. That's why we're having this discussion because the left wants H.R. 1, the Democrats want H.R. 1, and we Republicans are worried about it for good reason. Two senators who are Democrats who seem to be not so excited to change the filibuster rules are Joe Manchin of West Virginia and our own Kirsten Sinema. I don't do this very often. I'm trying to remember the last time I did and I can't. I know I did. I just can't remember it. It's been that long ago. But I think it would be important for Senator Sinema to hear from you 
on this. I think it would be important for her to know how many of her constituents care about a radical change to Senate procedure that will even more radically affect our election laws. If you want to have a debate about the filibuster, do it sometime other than where it's very clearly being used as a wedge to pass radical election law reform. If you want to have a debate about the filibuster, have that debate, not in the midst of debating the cons- not in the midst of debating a piece of legislation whose consequences will radically federalize and alter elections from here to kingdom come. Senator Cinema should hear from you all on this. Whether you call her office and express your opinion or email her, I'm encouraging you to, to give her the support that uh, she may be looking for because she has not committed to a vote to end the filibuster at this point. Good for her. Good for her on that. I support, I support her position on that. Let her know you stand with her on that. It's important for her to know she is not the senator of the Democrats of Arizona. She is the senator of all Ari- for all Arizonans. She represents me as much as she represents you, as much as she represents the chairman of the Democratic Party in Arizona. Let her know that you support her position on maintaining the filibuster right now. Um, Mitch McConnell, if you need to understand what it's about better or in more detail, Mitch McConnell has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal you can access. It starts off with a quote. The legislative filibuster is the most important distinction between the Senate and the House. Without the 60-vote threshold for legislation, the Senate becomes a majoritarian institution just like the House, much more subject to the winds of short-term electoral change. No senator would like to see that happen. Close quote. Chuck Schumer, 2017, not so long ago. When President Trump pressed Republicans to kill the filibuster, Democratic colleagues cried foul. When the Republican majority stood on principle and refused to wreck the rules, Democratic colleagues happily used the filibuster themselves. In some cases, they blocked legislation like Tim Scott's police reform bill. Other times they simply did what minority parties always do, use the mere existence of the filibuster to influence must-pass legislation long before it gets to the floor. There's more to say here. I'll say it when we come back. But make it a point over the next couple of days to reach out to Senator Cinema and tell her not to end the filibuster. It's important that she hear from you. It's really important. Wouldn't it be great? If she voted the right way on this and was able to say, well, you know, I got calls from thousands of Arizonans who think this is important right now or at least not the right time to end it. Let's give her that ability to utter that sentence. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.
I just learned, I guess, I'm not part and parcel of a group email, an employee email here, chain, uh, having to do with uh, March Madness. Is that right, Bill? You're telling me that there's all kinds of goings-on in the office with emails about March Madness that I have been prescinded from? They just they just took me out? I'm not part of this conversation? I'm not privy to any of the goings-on with March Madness? Interesting. Well, I'm not going to complain about it. Um, I have some office questions, especially when you and I are the only people here, um, which because of COVID is often the case, COVID uh, policies. <clears throat> if a decision needs to be made, who has that authority? when, say, the GM or the HR director isn't here. And you made a good point. You said, well, maybe it's the safety captain. But the problem is I am a defrocked safety captain. I was the safety captain here for about three hours. I got the vest and the flashlight. Do you remember why I was defrocked? I remember why I was defrocked. I um it was it was long before covid so we had full staff here what did we have 20 25 people here and I um I cut my finger Do you remember this? And I needed a band-aid. And I was screaming through the office like a banshee, "Where's the first aid kit? Where's the first aid kit?" And someone quietly walked up to me and said, Seth, you're the safety captain. It's in your desk drawer. It was at that point I was defrocked as the safety captain, which every office evidently has one. So as a defrocked safety captain, an impeached and convicted safety captain, I don't know that I have any more authority over this to make decisions. You might be the decision maker here, Bill. You might be the decider in chief for policies when you and I are the only ones here. Well, some have greatness thrust upon them. Yeah. Yeah. Some have it taken away from them. I'm in that category. I was talking about the filibuster and I do think it's important that we let Kirsten Cinema know that she should stand firm on this and, and that she has the support of a lot of Arizonans on this. And I was pointing out to Mitch McConnell's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today, if you want to access it to get more specific understanding of the filibuster beyond what I was saying in the last segment. But Mitch writes that there's so much emphasis on the most extreme bills that either party, if we got rid of the filibuster, would pass with a simple majority um, things that people forget the Senate 60 vote threshold has prevented. It's prevented it from making extremes become the law. Big funding deals, appropriation bills, farm bills, highway bills, the defense authorization bill, 60-vote threshold, backstops, all of it. The Senate Democrats who are pressuring uh, Senators uh, Cinema and Manchin to reverse their commitments are arguing for a radically less stable and less consensus-driven system of government. It's a good point. If you want consensus-driven government, if you want moderation, you have to stand by the filibuster at this moment in time. Nothing in federal law would ever be settled 
That may be what a few liberal activists wants, but does anyone believe the American people were voting for an entirely new system of government when they elected Joe Biden to the White House and a narrow House majority and a 50-50 Senate? Of course not. Some Democratic senators seem to imagine that breaking the rules on a razor-thin majority would be a tidy trade-off. Sure, it might damage the institution, but then nothing would stand between them and their entire agenda, a new era of fast-track policymaking. But anyone who really knows the Senate knows that's not what would happen. Nobody serving in the Senate can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched-earth Senate would look like. No senator has served one minute in the Senate that was completely drained of comedy and consent. It's an institution that requires unanimous consent to turn the lights on before noon, to proceed with garden variety floor speeches, to dispense with the reading of legislative texts, to schedule committee business, to move on even uncontroversial nominees at faster than a snail's pace. Imagine a world where every single task requires a physical quorum of 51 senators on the floor. And by the way, the vice president wouldn't count. Everything that Democratic Senates did to Presidents Bush and Trump, everything the Republican Senate did to President Obama would be child's play compared with the disaster that Democrats would create for their own priorities if they broke the Senate. Even the most mundane tasks would become much harder, not easier, in a post-nuclear 50-50 Senate. Take a look at Mitch McConnell's piece um, and let's, let's, let's not be making radical changes to enact radical changes that the American people didn't vote for. Well, who knew that the the, the safety captain story would be <coughs> so popular and <coughs> pregnant with meaning? I just got a couple emails on it. One listener, John, is representative of him. I had to pull over off the side of the road. I was laughing so hard at your safety captain story. Keep it up. All the best, John. Well, you're laughing at my misery. It's schadenfreude. Um, my general manager was evidently listening, and he said it was a legitimate defrocking. He he evidently had a hand in stripping me of my uh, safety captain powers. Um do you know the word schadenfreude? It's a great word, and I think more people have gotten to know it over the recent years. It's a loan word. Do you know what a loan word is, Bill? Can you put it together? Could you could you figure out what a loan word is if I tell you schadenfreude is a loan word, L-O-A-N? A word legitimately contemporary to another language that we have adopted for the English language. So schadenfreude, it's a German word, literally meaning harm, joy, or damage, joy. Uh, Schaden means damage. Freud means Freude means joy. There's a lot of them in the English language. We use them without even probably thinking about it. Uh, karaoke uh, might be one. Um, uh, klutz, I think, is Yiddish probably. Kindergarten is one. We think about that. Anyway, loan words. Schadenfreude is the loan word of the um, of the day. Uh, okay. Men to watch and women to watch. Man and a woman I'm watching the most right now are two governors. One is South Dakota, Christy Noem, and one is Florida's Ron DeSantis. In my monologue, I talked about Christy Noem pushing back against the National Park Service, which is trying to stop the fireworks display at Mount Rushmore this July. Remember in 2000s, early aughts, when we uh, 
We're talking about a war against Christmas. John Gibson may have had a book about it, if memory serves. I think it's a war against Independence Day, July 4th holiday. The National Park Service is trying to stop the fireworks display in South Dakota at Mount Rushmore. Based on pretense, Christy Noem's fighting back. She'll win. I bank on her. Watch Florida Governor Ron DeSantis doing all the right things. Today he took uh, took to the microphones to uh, state that we will not be using critical race theory in Florida's public schools if he has anything to say about it. Quoting from the Washington Examiner, there's no room, quote, he said, there is no room in our classrooms for things like critical race theory. Teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money. God bless Ron DeSantis. Teaching kids to hate their country and to hate each other is not worth one red cent of taxpayer money, he said. Fantastic. He also said he's proposing a $3,000 bonus for Florida teachers who complete a civic education program that focuses on foundational concepts rather than the critical race theory that has been spreading nationwide. If you want to know what is meant by critical race theory, curriculum, it's the 1619 Project. It's the teaching that race does matter. It's the teaching that America was founded complete and utter sin. Washington Examiner talks about how government employees are facing it as well, not just teachers. For example, in San Diego County, they were forced to take part in a critical race theory training, including a lecture stating that only white people are capable of being racist. That's what critical race theory is. The CDC, which you may have thought had other things to worry about, last fall went forward with a critical race theory training despite an executive order President Trump issued to stop it. The CDC engaging in critical race theory training is somewhat akin to me of the Department of Defense targeting Tucker Carlson. It belongs in the category of don't you have more important things to do right now? That category. Um, watch DeSantis. Watch Noam. More than that. More than that. Um, support them. Support them. DeSantis taking on critical race theory in Florida reminds me of nothing so much of Ronald Reagan taking on the uh, – Colleges and universities in the UC system in 1967 when he was governor of California. There's some great YouTube videos of those. And by the way, you know, thinking – who was I talking with the other day about this? I guess it was Pete Peterson on Friday. We were talking about Reagan as governor taking on the colleges in California. Governors can do that because they typically appoint the regents or the board of trustees to the state universities in their state. And I don't think they wield the power as strongly as they should in too many cases. Ronald Reagan taught them how to do it. It's what made him a national figure. uh, I should say a figure of national prominence for the presidency was the way he made news taking on the cultural institutions of UC 
of the UC system. Who takes on the colleges? People like Ronald Reagan and Ron DeSantis. I don't think it's a criteria that you have to have your first name being Ronald to be a great governor who takes on cultural institutions. But it's of some note that the two we point to who don't seem to be afraid are the Reagans and the DeSantis's, Ron in both cases. Um, that's, that's not my main point. My main point is if we're going to push back as hard against the culture as pushes against us, it's not something we can just say. It's not something we can just feel good about thinking. It's about supporting those who actually do it, like your Christy Gnomes and Ron DeSantis's. God bless them. I hate, I hate, I hate when the left tries to take the moral high ground on sympathy and empathy. Because there's usually, usually another angle to it, as there has been with the narrative over the Atlanta murders. So I close today with some tweets from Tom Elliott. If you don't follow him, I think he's very much worthwhile following. He's the head of Grabian Media, G-R-A-B-I-E-N. And he writes, the killings in Atlanta are horrifying. The murderer is obviously the murderer is obviously a very disturbed and very evil person. Unfortunately, the media's inability to think beyond race minimizes the actual tragedy. There were people, not mere members of some larger color group, who were killed. If someone in your family were killed in cold blood, would you want the headline to read "Axe-wielding lunatic murders white guy" or "Gunman murders Asian woman"? No. You'd want your name. We're all unique individuals living our own independent lives with our own values and our own achievements, and we deserve being recognized for being individual human beings, not just members, crass members of a race. It's especially galling as we now know yesterday's horrifying mass murder wasn't animated by anti-Asian animosity as the first narratives of the media pointed out that it was. Wrong again. But today's left, nursing a bizarre reflex to assign every bad thing into one of their pre-existing categories for big government activism, white supremacy, climate change, systematic racism, they can't accept that. So the media, major media have spent today hyping a fake story of anti-Asian violence in hopes of adding renewed racial conflict on top of yesterday's tragedy. It's pathetic and it's destructive and it's all in a day's work. For America's major media, you bet it is. Thank you, Tom Elliott, for that. And to all of you, bless you. And until tomorrow, class dismissed.